Hi, and welcome to the post-apocalyptic housewife. This is a post-recording um, after my interview with Devette Toy. Um, and I realized that it's nice, maybe, I think, to just give you an idea of what we spoke about. First of all, that we could have spoken for hours. Well, I mean, his throat would have run dry eventually, but just fascinating and so much so many rabbit holes to go down but what a fascinating conservationist what a fascinating man from his time he spent in the Mexican desert to his time on an anti-poaching vessel with Sea Shepherd to his journey now in the bushveld in South Africa what what an extraordinary life um that's devoted to it and then just a I don't know if you call it a disclaimer but, but um, I don't edit my podcasts for two reasons one I don't have the competence or the patience and two I just really believe it should be as it is a little bit messy and don't always have the right words and everything doesn't come out perfectly because that's just it is what it is <laughs> Um, so enjoy. And yeah, that's it. Um, he is a conservationist, an adventurer and a recovering capitalist. He recently returned to South Africa after three and a half years in the Americas working for Sea Shepherd. Um, living out of a backpack, modifying and preparing anti-poaching vessels for violent clashes with Mexican wildlife poachers. Uh, the Sea Shepherd objective in northern Mexico is to halt the extinction of the world's most endangered marine animal, which I don't know if I can pronounce it. It's Totuaba. Tevet, is that right? Uh. Yeah, so, so the marine mammal that's uh, most endangered is called the vaquita marina. Uh. And uh, it's a it's a small porpoise, yeah. Okay, okay. And it's for is it for medicine? Why is it poached? What what is the? Yeah, the Chinese uh, use it in soups, and it's believed to have medicinal properties, uh, including uh, helping for menstrual cramps. Okay, okay. Um, I'll get back to that. I just want to, um, there's another bit in your biography that I really want to mention. And it's that during your off time, you kayaked across the Gulf of California for 30 days alone uh, in a Mexican desert, digging for water and hunting for food. Um, you describe yourself as an advocate for the desperate plight of the 5% of the remaining wildlife on our planet. Um I'm a little starstruck because I remember in high school there was a a guy came to school in his early twenties and he he had a bit of an Aussie accent but he was South African and he had been on a whirlwind adventure and I remember the girls in my row all swooning and all I kept thinking was I I don't want to marry this man I want to be this man um, it was and that's exactly why I think. I can't manage to unfriend you on Facebook is your spirit of adventure through everything you share is just really um, wonderful and intoxicating. And thank you for speaking to me today. Thanks, Lucille. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's so awesome being on. You're invited as your second guest. Um, 
Thank I you. feel flattered, and yeah, your family is always all up to these interesting things. So I feel uh, really flattered. And before we continue, Lisa, I just want to clear up quickly. Otherwise, my colleagues will uh, will uh, hold it against me. But just to be clear, the 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 vaquita is the most endangered marine mammal um, in the world. Okay. Um, and the reason it's going extinct is because poachers are fishing for the totwaba, who at one point was also uh, on the endangered list. Okay. Um, and so anyway, so they fish for the totwaba. They use the swim bladder from the totwaba, okay. uh, which, which allows uh, for buoyancy, for controlling buoyancy in the water. They, they use that organ and they ship that to China and that's used... Uh, for medicinal purposes. And the vaquita is the bycatch. Uh, so the vaquita okay. is going extinct just uh, as bycatch. Sure. So anyway, I, I just wanted to, to clear that up for whoever is listening. No, that's good. That's that's good. Thank you. Um, I So my children, the reason I asked them, I really wanted them to judge the book by its cover and to also give you insight into the, the next generation that I'm raising and it's funny that my son had overheard a conversation between my husband and I, and he, um, it was the bits he picked up. And I, I thought it was ironic that he picked up that your favorite thing was fishing from everything that we discussed. Um, but that just goes to show you what kids, so I want to know, um, basically use that as an intro to tell me your, your backstory. Um, and if you can pause, in two specific moments, if if they were very um, sort of profound and you remember them, is the moment where that conservationist was born and also the moment when the capitalist in you was born. I'm very curious. So you can start wherever you want and I'm listening. Okay, so... Um, so well, okay, so... Growing up as a kid in, in Stellenbosch, uh, I think my parents instilled in us uh, really a love of nature. So my father grew up on a farm. Uh, in fact, the, the Toyskloof area is is named after our family. And oh. it used to be a massive tract of land. And so over the years through generations that the piece that our family still held on to became smaller and smaller and smaller. So anyway, my father grew up on one of these these farms. And so he really had a love for the outdoors and the field and being in the field. Okay. And anyway, he chose to, to go into academics, into physics, and he became a nuclear physicist, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So my uncle took over the farm, even though my, my father was the firstborn. So... So anyway, so my father always had this love of being on the land and in the land. And, and he really installed that as well as this kind of academic way of looking at the laws of physics and the environment and biology and all these things. He installed this into us. Okay. So we grew up, you know, Stambosch, uh, as well as I do, if not better, but we, we grew up. Um, it's obviously a, a town that's immersed in nature. Yes. So we would often spend uh, time outdoors uh, in nature. In fact, that, that was my favorite activity. So I grew up, yeah, fishing in the river. As a young boy, I would, I would take a walk okay. um, sometimes very early, maybe like five, six o'clock in the morning um, before the sun would be up and I'd be fly fishing in the, in the stream. 
barefoot in the in the river, uh, just you know, using uh, uh, dry flies and and dry line to, yeah. to catch trout. So that that was my some of my earliest memories of of nature and really being in in touch with nature. You know, yes. having being immersed in the water first thing in the morning and sort of fishing and taking something out of the out of nature and and eating that living living off that you know so I guess for anybody that truly loves and wants to protect uh, nature the first part of that awareness is uh, falling in love with it and and really um connecting with nature and, and realizing that this is something that's that that you have fond memories of or that you really uh, aspire to to protect and yeah. I, I, so I think becoming a conservationist or deciding that this is something that's important to you that you do want to protect I think the first step in that evolution personally is probably uh, enabling or creating a, a love for uh for nature or or as you may call it mother earth uh, yeah. whatever your term is um yeah i think that's that's definitely definitely the the first step so for me now obviously life has changed a little bit because you have this like uh your kids remark fishing is one of my favorite things um yeah, I, I I wouldn't say I I don't really fish anymore. I do. I have to be honest with you. I I am not stereotypical. If you examine, for instance, like the Sea Shepherd conservationists, yes. they tend to be a, lo- a little bit different from the guys that you would find other marine conservationists, or for for example. Um, the guys that work with the rhino or the big five in the bushveld, these are all conservationists, but they tend to have very different worldviews. Yes. Yeah. So the sea shepherd guys are very much, in general, not everybody, but I would say 60, 70% are sort of anti, anti-fishing, anti-hunting. Okay. I, not, not everyone on the sea shepherd crew shares that view, but uh, being like a vegan, a very much a vegan uh, driven an organization uh, where you only find vegan food on their boats and so on. Okay. Uh, people have this very strong vegan worldview. And it's not to say that everyone on the crew has that view. In fact, I would estimate about 20 or, or 20 to 40 percent of the people are not strictly vegan okay. or in, environmentalists um, and they are conservationists, but they, they have a different view. And I certainly fall within that category. Okay. So even though I I try to not really fish that much anymore, I do um, subscribe more to the hunter gatherer way of life, as that's been mm. uh, very true to our history on this planet as a species, as the Homo sapiens species. Yeah. And I think pre-agricultural revolution, when we were in fact still hunter gatherers. Those were the only days that we were, in fact, living in harmony uh, with the earth and with and, life. Exactly. So I, I, I do not see something wrong with fishing. Mm. But um, and for instance, I'm a big fan of the Native American populations, the way they used to live, as well as the Batwa people in Central Africa, or also known <laughs> as the Pygmy people. Mm-hmm. And they are hunter gatherers. They do. These people do fish. 
but not on the industrial scale that we do today. And, and the big flaw, conservation-wise, uh, or environmentally today is in the industrial scale that we do things. Yes. Um, Did you, when um, you were on, sorry, I have a question. When you were on the boats and, and those are, are those different worldviews, was there space for for your worldview as well? Was was there also a sense of respect that you can you can have the same goal but come at it from a different angle? Did you feel that there was space for that? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I I think and we should actually at some point I should talk you through like what it is to be uh, what it is like to be on a sea shepherd vessel and how you know, how your day-to-day life looks in, in that, because I think it's a it's a very interesting story. But um, just in terms of uh, the, the personalities that are drawn into this experience, you know, it's been an organization that's been around since 1972, and it's actually pretty much the original Greenpeace. Uh, Greenpeace today is not anything close to the original Greenpeace. I would say Sea Shepherd today is still almost 90% of the original Greenpeace. It, 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 Paul Watson, the founder of Sea Shepherd, was one of the founding members of Greenpeace. And I think he's pretty much the only one that's still active, uh, really active. And he's, uh, he obviously started Sea Shepherd shortly after, the found, shortly after he exited Greenpeace. Okay. And, um, and so Sea Shepherd is very much that original Greenpeace model still. It's still David versus Goliath. It's guys putting themselves between the, the harpooner and the whale and really taking, taking big risks uh, yeah. or in modern day f- fights. You know, it's, it's in Mexico in the Sea of Cortez. You've got violent poachers backed by cartels. And sure. then you have these volunteers, uh, often vegans, vegetarians, uh, putting themselves between... Uh, these guys and their their Molotov cocktails and the endangered species, you know. So it's very much still the original Greenpeace model that's still living itself out today through through Sea Shepherd. Okay. But um, being on these crews, yeah, it, it attracts very interesting characters. It it, it they attract um, people from all over the world, and some of the people are pure adventurers. Some are searching for something in their life. Some are conservationists, some are scientists, some are ex-soldiers, ex-policemen, and uh, some are like these hardcore vegans. Fascinating. And um, so you have a, and some are just there to get qualifications. For for instance, a lot of the Mexican guys on our crews, when they join, they're not that much into uh, saving wildlife. Huh. They come to get uh, engineering tickets and sea time. And uh, some of them change during their stay with the company. So they become way more uh, environmentally conscious and so on. So there is a change in in some of these guys. But yeah, you have a mixture of personalities all coming together on this this boat and then sharing a living space, sharing a working space, being in each other's company 24-7, literally, and then facing the elements together, facing the criminals together, facing poachers, facing big danger, storms, all these things at sea together as a unit, you know, almost a little bit like a military unit. 
So, yeah, conversations can get heated and, and you have to be sensitive to the topics and how you approach topics because sometimes some of these uh, people that do join, even though they may have the best intentions, they may have uh, stronger or even sometimes extreme views. And I think that's the case in all of society. Yes. You know, but... But certainly one has to be careful of how you approach uh, some topics because people, obviously the people joining these environments are super passionate about what they do. I mean, this is why mm. they give up everything they have and they come and stay um, in this very much almost like a Spartan lifestyle for, for months, if not if not years, you know. So there are the longevity or the, what do you think... It, is it is it sustainable? Do people flow in and out of that space, or is it something that is a lifelong commitment for the majority? But you're you're already describing that people aren't there for the same reasons. Um, yeah, yeah. So so your crew, um, it's a typical ship or navy structure. It's similar to a military structure. Okay. Um, you have everything from a captain to your first, second, and third, or typically first and second officer or first and second mate. And then you have a bosun and blah, blah, blah. So you have these senior ranks going all the way down to uh, the, the more junior level employee. Um, and the guys on the, on the senior levels, uh, some of them have been around for quite a while. They tend to stick around a little bit longer and they get promoted and that uh, mm. keeps them there for longer. Um, the, the guys in the, in the lower uh, levels or more junior guys or just more temporary workers, um, mm. there's a higher turnover rate on them. Yeah, I understand. Uh, so, so they may turn over sometimes if, like during COVID, when things are a little bit, uh, a, a little bit unstable, yeah. that turnover may be even more rapid. Um, and then also the fact that many of our workforce are in fact volunteers, um, that also creates an environment where your turnover is a little bit more rapid than what you would see in a normal or a different company. So that makes Sea very unique and very interesting um, because the people that come are, I would say 80% of them are unpaid. And so you can imagine the kind of passion or dedication you need to come and step into this world, into a very dangerous place sometimes yeah. and do it completely unpaid and work six days a week in tropical suns, uh, out at sea, getting seasick. Uh, facing storms, like just cutting away at metal, risking all kinds of injuries. It takes a very dedicated person. And um, anyway, so so yeah, this is this, this is kind of uh, uh, what what did you ask? I I may have lost track. Now. No, I but I went off on that track with you, and I was also trying to backtrack now to where did the road split, but I'm not sure. But the question originally was. We started with your backstory and then we went off into the conservationist leg of it. So I guess the most natural progression now is to go the, the other direction, which was capitalist. And that when you first noticed that part of you become alive and, and right. yeah, so that's, okay, yeah. So, so I would say, I would say um, in all of us, we have this inner battle, there's different elements pulling at us, you know? 
there's who we truly think we are, who we truly feel we are, who society wants us to be, what our parents want us to be, um, what the law requires of us to be. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, then the environment, you know, during times of war, it's important that you go into military and protect your country. For instance, you can't necessarily do what you want to do and all these things. So you have all these variables that uh, that kind of steer you throughout life. And I think for me as a young kid, like I said to you, uh, of course, I, I was a little bit strange. I wanted to be a variety of things. I wanted to be a fireman. Then I wanted to be a soldier. Then I wanted to be... Uh, I, one of the things that I really wanted to be was insect uh, in Afrikaans. <laughs> Entomologist, I think. Like, yes. Yeah, I, I loved insects as a kid. And I still, when I look at insects, I, I think like these are the most amazing things Absolutely. that have Absolutely. ever been designed um call it evolution call it if you're a spiritual person god whatever you want to call it but like and when i look at drones today and i look at insects and and animals not not only do we steal so much of our design from nature if not 90 percent of it but you know our our base designs are just totally inferior to nature yes oh absolutely yeah i mean imagine a drone that could procreate and breed and evolve to become better and better and better and adapt to a variety of different situations and it actually duplicates itself you know imagine that that's insane and that's what you have that's what you have in a bee for example exactly the bee i was just thinking of the bee but when you speak like that it feels like my heart is just like coming out of my chest i feel it like against my rib cage because yeah it's it is overwhelming and extraordinary and it's yeah yeah. it's crazy it's crazy and and these things are so important in this bigger system uh in the ecosystem or ecosystem um and anyway so so so, yeah so this is what my heart was kind of drawn towards um and i think then um, I think at some point in my life, um, I was not doing terribly well in, in conventional. I, academically, I did really well up until a certain point. My, my parents were academics, so it was easy for me. But then I kind of just lost uh, my passion and my drive for, for the whole, I would say, the whole system, how we're processed um, in our modern system to become these highly specialized accountants or programmers or whatever. Mm. I, I got kind of frustrated with that. And I think at one point during my younger life, especially my teenage years, I started really rebelling and looking for adventure in, in other ways, you know, because mm-hmm. school certainly did not provide that uh, for me at all. So, mm. so I kind of rebelled. And then um, at one point, I think I may have rebelled a little bit too far and things looked a little bit rocky. And so I decided, okay, maybe I just need to get my life together and like do the right thing and become like a productive society member. Yeah. And I think when, when I decided that I said, okay, let me just walk this path that everyone is kind of saying I should walk and let me just do it to the best of my ability. And then, once I've accomplished it, then I can look back and, and see um, and, and kind of say, 
to everybody, look, I could have done, I, I did this, blah, blah, blah. So now what? I don't know what went so through my head. There, but I, I was going to ask you, was there pressure? Because was what was the, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of things I'm trying to figure out because it was a strong decision that took you in a very specific path, but it sounds like it was birthed out of different emotions, frustration and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I rebelled probably a little bit too far and I ran into problems with my principal and, and so on at school. Okay. And it was kind of a, it, it was kind of like a, a, a really rocky end of my teenage years. And at that point, I kind of decided, okay, maybe I'm, I'm going too wild. I need to focus and, and do things uh, properly. Okay. And at that point, I kind of embraced, uh, embraced like the corporate, uh, corporate life. I, I never fully embraced it. You know, I, I worked throughout my corporate career. We, we, I ended up doing quite okay uh, as an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur. But I would, for instance, I always wore a t-shirt to work, and this was something you could do as a. Yes. in tech but my colleagues would dress up with suits and ties and I just flatly refused you know even though I was I was uh, running a, a company later on I always still kind of rebelled but uh, I, I did uh, when I when, when I gave myself over to um, to what society kind of expected of me I would say I, I did it I tried to do it like 110 percent you know Huh. And yeah, so I I got involved in tech. It was like year two thousand, and so um, that's young, eh? You were twenty, twenty one. Yeah, so it was the dot com okay. boom back then. So programmers and network analysts were just making a killing, mm. and I did have kind of a a, a, a talent. I, I I started young writing code because my dad was a like I said he was like a a physicist so obviously as a kid of a physicist you're exposed to computers and your father will buy you like scientific books and stuff so yeah i wrote my first code when i was was quite young back then it was super young like writing code at 13 was like probably writing code today at the age of six or something because you didn't really not everybody had computers not everybody had cell phones you know in fact no one had cell phones so tech just wasn't that readily available. But anyway, uh, yeah, I picked up the skill of, of programming and then Did you uh, enjoy it? Did you did you like what you what you did when you yeah, started? I, I I would say yeah, I did actually enjoy the challenge, the intellectual challenge in it. Um and the fact that you you could use technology, especially code, to bold and absolutely amazing things i mean like one of the first things that struck me really when i was young was when i looked at a virtual studio uh you had your whole music studio from your synthesizers your drum machines your mixers your digital mixers and whatever uh displayed on a screen and you could rewire draw wires from one input to another output and you literally had a whole music studio digitally really well designed with a great interface on a screen and that struck me you know how much uh code uh was able to to do in in the modern world and um yeah i think i think uh, i i love that problem solving component to it you 
you have things that nobody has ever built before in, in um, these new problems, and you can build um, technology to solve those problems. Uh, you can be a nobody and write an excellent piece of code, and it can be distributed across thousands and thousands of machines or uh, internationally uh, across the world, you know. Yeah. So that was exciting. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to lie to you. And um, I think that was kind of the start of my my venture into capitalism where i combined that skill but more actually an entrepreneurial skill of generating income and profit you know mm. and um and yeah so that kind of put me on that trajectory and of course you get the feedback from society right yeah, now you're, right yeah yeah you're doing great you're doing right this is like now you're becoming like uh, celebrated within society which i think also is is actually uh, quite something that's largely uh, wrong with our modern society is the kind of characters and the attributes and the properties that we uh, award and celebrate i think we've got it completely wrong um yeah. but yeah i i kind of became that person and, and i i'll be honest i'll be honest it feels good to get that recognition uh, from people, it certainly felt good. Yeah, uh, it's certainly nice having money in your in your pocket, especially when you're in your early twenties and you're starting to uh, have a decent bank balance and drive decent cars. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was that was my my venture into into capitalism. Yeah. But now I know somewhere something happened and it all changed, and I'm. I, I'm very curious what happened because that is not the man you're describing is not who I see today. Yeah, so um, so I would say <laughs> in my in my early 30s, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I had a, a life-changing uh, event. Um, okay. And I think it, it was an accumulation of things. I think I had accomplished many of the things uh, I wanted to accomplish, and I think I had amassed uh, a decent amount of material wealth. Okay. Um, and I had the toys and the cars, the motorbikes, I had properties. Uh, well, that was still mortgage, but I was making a de decent amount of money, and I just, um, I just wasn't happy to be honest. Um, and I think classically, just like pretty much all people. Not all people, sorry, let me backtrack. Like a, a significant um, percentage of people out there who are, you know, living out this modern lifestyle uh, in a highly specialized career, completely disconnected from nature, from their, um, from where their food comes from. They're, they're just living these very artificial lives like, like, like I was. Yeah, I think um, I think it, it at a certain point, if you're honest with yourself, you realize, listen, I'm in order to find happiness, I'm spending money buying this toy, like this yeah. new car, and it only makes me happy really for three days, four yeah. days, five days. Yeah. If you're lucky, two weeks, you know, and then you realize, shit. Yeah. So, sorry, but when, yeah. then you you can cut it out afterwards. Or just I can't cut it, it out of it. I suck at editing. It's staying in, like life. Okay. 
Amazing. Okay. Right, but but then you realize um, you realize okay, I'm I'm chasing my happiness through all these other means, mm. and then at the end of of my year of relentless working and like chasing around, driving in a car to the gym so I can run on a machine yeah. so I can drive back, uh, which makes no sense by the way. Uh, living this really uh, hard corporate like rat race life and then at the end of the year I get a week and a half that I can go spend in the Kruger Park or in nature somewhere yeah you know and, and you at some point I think for me uh, luckily I just had this epiphany one evening that um, this is not it you know so I'm here now but but this is not it and I think other people, <laughs> other people may have dealt with it way smarter than what I did. But I, I think for me, um, instead of calming down and like saying, okay, I need to take a break and go and figure this out, which is probably yeah. something I would do now and in, in, in this period of my life. Back then, I just, I, I think I just worked harder and okay. I drank more and I smoked more cigarettes and I just uh, my health took a beating sure and I think I, I pretty much burnt out completely at that point and then when that happened that was kind of a catalyst where um, I realized okay things have to change and um, yeah that that was for me the the catalyst um and uh, that, that's where the change started to happen. And, and I think um, that's often the case when people do make significant changes in their life. Um, it's very often a reactive thing, mm. uh, reactive to something happening. Um, I think if you're one of those lucky people and you can actually make that change proactively, you'll save yourself uh, a lot of uh, worry and, and unhappiness and just... Yeah. Uh, yeah, get there faster, you know. I have a, a question. The the mother in me is um, curious. I, what did you, during this period of your life, did mm -hmm. what was your mother's influence, or how much did you still? What was that connection like? Because I can I can feel it from a, a feeling space that I would want to support my son in some way with that struggle. But how significant? Because it, every time you've told me, it was it sounds like you you came to a space and you made the changes. But what were the if it was not your mother? What were the influences that helped you? I, I think, yeah, I I think for me, um, it was uh, I, I I think it, it, I I had kind of built this business and built this life far away from home uh, in in the northern part of um, South Africa. And I'd always been, I think my brother as well, we'd always been quite different from um, my parents in, in what they wanted out of life. And I think what they wanted for us. Okay. Um, so I think our f family, we, we didn't necessarily uh, communicate these things uh, in real time all that clear as we should have or could have maybe. Yeah. Um, but certainly uh, for me, this was, was kind of something I struggled uh, through um, on myself mostly. 
And I mean, I I have been fortunate to have amazing parents, and and I cannot complain about anything. It's it's just the way it it, it turned out. Yeah. But for me, at that point in my life, and now we're going to go into a completely new direction, but but I had kind of a, a, a very strong spiritual experience. And, um, huh. and yeah, and, and that for me really got me um, through things. I, I, uh, I explored the, the spiritual side of, of, um, of life and, and of my existence and... Yeah. Um, that is something that's reshaped me and completely changed my life. Um, and you know, it's nowadays it's so unpopular to talk about. Um, and we even use the word spirituality, and we use the universe and all these different terms. Mm. For me, I'm I'm a simple person. I just I just call it God. And um, and yeah, for me, I had I had a deep and very uh, profound spiritual. Um, experience and you know what it, it didn't simplify it didn't um turn me into into this extreme bible bashing person or mm. anything if anything it, for me it, it brought more adventure to my life and it, it it was something that i think that really shaped me into being um being who i am uh today you know mm. um so for me that that was uh uh, a part of my evolution was um, was I, I would say in a way giving up my dependence and my faith in materialism and humanism yeah. and yeah. becoming a more spiritual person and, and uh, you know spending time outdoors spending time meditating from time to time I would fast and I would really start looking at these mystical parts of life where before I was really just uh, um, uh-huh. very much stuck into a materialistic uh, way of life. And I, I credit that for, for uh, much of my, much of exploring and finding my, my actual self in, in my own experience, in my own life, you know. Um, I, I think this may be built slightly on that, but um we're both white South Africans and I, when I moved to the Netherlands, especially, um, I felt a weight. I wonder sometimes, and I wonder if you feel the extra weight of your privilege being a white South African, does it put extra weight on you in the work that you do now? Is that another layer? Is that something that you feel is not a reality for you? Because it, it was only when I, stuck into nature that that guilt started lifting and I realized there's nothing there's nothing I can do about my history at this point it's not going to serve any purpose on this planet any longer and I'm wondering does is that a driver for you as well um a, a feeling of guilt of your privilege of how you could explore and how you could experience life yeah, look, I think I think there's a couple of different angles to this subject. And I, I think um, you may be South African and you may still be fast asleep. You may not even be aware, or white South African at least, you may not even be aware of your level of privilege that you have. Uh, as strange as that may seem, I think there's still many people, even in this country, and this country is very unique racially or politically. 
because of these strifes in the history and the battle over resources between these different racial and cultural and ethnic groups. Mm. Um, So here, topics of racism, transformation, uh, historic injustices, and those things are so relevant and it's so loud. And even despite that, many people are still totally unaware of exactly how um, privileged they've been. Yeah. Um, so I think I think it's a big thing. But for me now, working with endangered species, you know, I my view has changed quite a bit because I look at all humans as um, now as, as uh, being quite spoiled. You know, mm. uh, perpetrators against uh, nature and like you know. 99.999 of the, the other species out there so it's not just white people it's yeah. it's it's in our world it's all humans yeah. are um are encroaching and uh causing uh great uh, um injustices towards the majority of other species on on planet earth even though we depend so strongly on them yeah. so that's another thing is that yeah i i do agree the, coming from South Africa, that's uh, that's a difficult thing to deal with. But for me now, from where I stand and look now, um, what's really changed my view is is and and also having done these experiments or these adventures where I would stay in the wild for uh, extensive periods and just live like uh, live like an animal. Really, you know, it's it's. Yeah. It because some of these adventures I would live from whatever I could catch, whatever I could eat, um, and seeing how little I could take from nature and how hard I had to work for it, I've just come to realize how how blessed, mm. like pretty much most of humanity is. I mean, our lives have become so much easier than what it was uh, hundreds, if not, and especially more, even more so, thousands of years ago. Yeah. Um, that we're re- really a pretty privileged um, species at this point, overprivileged. Um, yeah. And that all the other species out there are, are the victims of this. So, so I, don't, I don't carry this big chip uh, on my shoulder um, anymore. Um, but having said that, yeah, not, like for instance, coming back from Mexico now and then walking into Stellenbosch and seeing this, economic uh division uh these um yeah the 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 you, you would know perfectly walking from a kayamandi to a monster's thrift or whatever like just absolute yeah. absolute equality gap i mean you day and night difference yeah you know you you gotta and and and, and of course i spent now um three years in Latin America, um, uh, including a, a, a well, three and a half years abroad, including a stint in the USA and then a, yeah. a few parts in Latin America. So I've seen, you know, other parts of the world. And I, when I was younger, I traveled as well quite a bit. So, so when you come back, these things strike you as okay. This is even by even in Mexico, this is this is abnormal, and this would raise some eyebrows, you know. But what um, happens in because um, I read an article. It was called the "Teaching Your Child to Love a Dying World," and it was the rest of the article was behind a paywall. But what got to me was the 
the title that when you come back and you've, you've spent this time in Mexico, these 30 days by yourself, and you, you see the contrast when you step back into society, what is the, how do you, because I, I imagine you feel out of sorts and, and I don't know, what are the feelings that you feel? Because for me, it's kind of a resolve that I ended up with of, okay, it is what it is and I'm going to pick up what I can. Like if you love someone that has a terminal illness, it's, it's the way you care for them. It changed me from activist to more just being active in what, what can I control here because it's overwhelming. And I'm, I wonder what you do or if you ever get that sense of just being overwhelmed by the mess of it all. Maybe describe one of your days when you were in the Mexican desert and then I want you to describe what it felt like coming back to Stellenbosch because that's going to lead, I think, into the question that I want to ask you about those contrasting realities. Okay, so, so I decided to spend about 30 days in the desert um, in kind of the south part of Baja, uh, which is a peninsula and it's got the, the Gulf of California on one side and the Pacific Ocean on the other side. And it's deserty, lots of cactus and so on. Um, so anyway, so I, I hiked in and uh, I crossed, um, crossed um, uh, two mountains and then I found a dry riverbed and I followed that down uh, for several days. And it was like a heat rush, so it was oh. pretty intense. Um, did you I, have a, was it mapped out, David? Did you have a plan of how you were going to go about it? I had some some rough ideas. I knew if I made it to the coast, uh, I would be I would be okay. And I I didn't know how things were going to look. I didn't really know whose land I was going to cross. I didn't really know that much about the legalities and the law oh. of crossing people's lands or how the rancheros, as they call the farmers. Um, would uh, accept my presence and so on. So a lot of it was unknown. Um, I knew I would encounter uh, some animals because I had done similar things before, maybe for shorter periods. Um, and then the water was a great unknown as well. Um, and so, yeah, when you embark on this, you, you, you know that little voice, uh, of reason that tells you you're insane and you're gonna die, you know you <laughs> you you do have a little bit of of worry at one point, but I mean I was just so amped um, to do it at that point. Um, I I become accustomed to living quite hard uh, doing the Sea Shepherd and off when I was off from the ships I would just have to survive by myself in in Mexico. Um, you know, so I'd, I'd become I'd become used to to facing uh, facing harshness, uh, I think, and so I was really just ready and very amped to do this thing. Did you need uh, to do it, or did you want to do it? What What is the? Yeah, yeah. So, so I went in, and I, I'm very glad I did this. Where I took, uh, uh, I I had virtually no technology. I I didn't have a way to charge phones. I didn't have reception. Um, I, I had a headlamp with me for emergencies, but I didn't want to use it because 
it was a really basic headlamp and if i used it then if i had a real emergency at night i might be in a uh in a big big jam so i really used the lights i was just going i wanted to go as primitive as possible um to see to really test myself against the elements uh, so one re I, I had about three reasons. I took a, a piece of uh, uh, some paper and pen, and I didn't take any books, but I had paper and pen. And um, right before I started, I made a list of why are you doing this, and I, I'm glad I did because that saw me through the whole thing. Um, yeah. But for me, w one part of it was absolutely it was spiritual. You know, I wanted to connect to whatever you want to call it. I call it God. You know, the Native Americans would call it the great spirit. Uh, somebody else will call it something, the universe, whatever. Yeah. I don't care, but I, I wanted to explore that side of myself. Uh, and I think it was like around the time of Passover, so that made it even more special for me. Huh. So, so that was one part. The other part was I was doing training for coming back to Africa and doing anti-poaching in the bushfire. So I wanted to practice tracking uh, animals and like survival skills and like thinking like a poacher and all these kind of things. So that was a second element. And then the third was adventure. And I think fourth was cost. I was trying to save costs to be honest. So it was all these things, um, yeah. all these things. And so anyway, so I set off, uh, on this trip and then um yeah it was tough man so day to day so it changed uh because when you start out you haven't manufactured any nice tools you haven't manufactured the camp you haven't found a, a decent camp so your days change the first couple of days you're pretty much just surviving and and moving and trying to find uh some better location so you basically, when you're out there, yeah, you, you especially in the desert, you, you can only move certain hours. And yeah. um, you got water is absolutely important. Um, and if you if you do have a problem with your water, if you make a mistake, uh, which is a real risk out there, and you take in bad water, yeah, you, you've got big problems because you, you can have heat stroke fairly quick. No? Please. So... So, yeah, the, the, the big thing was always water. And then the second thing was shade, shelter. And then the third thing was uh, finding food. And then the fourth thing was staying safe from animals, which initially is a bigger concern to one when you're not 100% sure. And also the more remote areas in the desert, yeah, you have bigger animals. So, um, you, were moving, you were moving across sort of land that was agricultural and then completely wild also like no wild 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 land yeah the look uh farmers do own it they they some of these parts belong to rancheros but they don't farm it like we farm it in those parts okay. they don't really productively farm it it's it's pretty much wild you come across every now and again, depending on which areas you are, you'll come across a, a few free-ranging cattle. But, but not like with us where you have these, um, you know, it, not nearly anything to that extent. So the land still belongs to somebody, but very wild. Um, and, of course, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of deserty, so you can't really 
do much with it. Uh, so it. It is, and these areas are kind of uh, remote and wild because obviously I went for remote and wild. I, I, mm. I, I didn't even get it as, as remote as I wanted it. Um, it's difficult nowadays to go all full out wilderness, you know, but, um, yeah, but yeah, this was, this was, uh, this was, was you, pretty, pretty did, remote. Did you get what you, what you wanted out of it? Did yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, well, number one, after that experience, I finally got a, got my in into an anti-poaching company that I'd been, um, aiming at for years. So after this experience, I sent them an email and I said, hey, uh, this is what I just did. And, and that was enough to change their minds and say, okay, when can you, when can you come uh, this side? Yeah. So anyway, so, so yeah, I got that. And then spiritually, oh, absolutely. I, I, I think that was the biggest part um, for me. The, the big, biggest payoff um, was the, the psychological um, effects um, and that's really interesting I'll tell you about that in a bit but sp spiritually the growth as well there's just so little distraction and, and so little noise because you don't have a cell phone you don't have headphones you don't have music you don't have a tv you don't have traffic rushing past you don't have all these distractions so you your mind really functions very very clear and yeah if there is something bigger than us outside of us this is the way in my opinion how you connect to it and you can really experience the connection yeah. but that, that's the other thing and then the last thing i want to mention was for me it was just so interesting because this is the benchmark this is how we used to live as hunter gatherers okay yeah. Yeah. And this is sustainable. And that I know because I've studied um, indigenous cultures now for a while, being fascinated with it and, and being a conservationist and having grown up with a koi sun, you know, on our family farm, there was a koi sun cave. And my father told me all these stories as a kid. So I've always been fascinated yeah. with indigenous communities. And when we lived like that, I know from my own investigations that was sustainable. That was when we still multiplied with the seasons and with the rest of nature. In other words, yes. if there was an increase in villabiest or an increase in whatever it was, bison for the for the when Native the American provided, yeah, when the season. Yeah. Yes. When it was a good season, you'd have an increase in human population. And when it was bad, you'd have a decrease. And people would very seldom uh, produce offspring. And so those were really the last times we were, we could call ourselves sustainable. And for me, living like this for 30 days, it, it was an eye opener. And it created for me in my mind the very realistic. Uh, reality-based baseline of this is sustainability. Anything on top of this is, is not baseline. Yeah. Uh, so now I look at life, I look at day-to-day uh, -day things, I look at having that extra cup of coffee, driving down to the gym to get on a machine to run when yeah. you could have gone for a run instead of doing all that yeah. extra bullshit and, and wasting yeah. all those resources. Now I look at those things and I go, okay, um, wow, this is eye-opening as to how far we've gone off 
what is sustainable and yet we use words like sustain like sustainable we slap it on our brands nowadays we we slap right. the eco label on everything bs you know yeah we're we're far removed from what used to be sustainable and that's a really interesting conversation but yeah day to day uh i would every single day i i would i would eat in general twice a day mm. once in the morning and once in the evening and i had to find food there was no feeling sorry for yourself today or i oh, just lie in an extra 10 minutes yeah. or yes. no the sea is too cold you can't jump in, into the sea or i'm scared there may be a shark no you had to twice a day you had to really go for it sometimes three times a day four times a day but in general i would eat once to twice a day um and i would drink very little water and i'd have to walk like on average three four kilometers for water um and and yeah so my day-to-day -day life was i i managed initially i did a lot of walking and it was mostly about water and then once i started perfecting my art i started figuring out how the animals work how this the huh. where the big pots are i found a little cave on a ledge fairly close to the ocean which is perfect three four kilometers from water which i had to dig for so this was kind of a, a good spot and my day-to-day -day life would, would be in the morning i would uh, go either fish or hunt or try and get honey or uh, whatever the case may be and then um in the, the warmest part of the afternoon i'd have to just use shelter. Yeah. yeah exactly and, and what's so interesting about the desert is when you go in initially it's just this empty empty space which is awesome because it's it's for meditation or for you know um for just defragging your mind this is incredible it's it's amazing but yeah. then as you spend more and more time there and you become more familiar with it and it becomes familiar with you as well because that also happens. That's interesting. Then you, yeah, then you start noticing the animals and the animals start approaching you. Um, and then obviously when you've scored uh, in nature, this is so fascinating because we never had fridges and these kind of big houses in nature, right? Yeah. So when you're in nature and you score, let's say you take out some wild honey or you catch something to eat or whatever, suddenly you become like a magnet to the other creatures, mm. you know? Yeah, of so, course. Wow, yeah. So you can't really store things like we do in modern society. Like we, we what do you call it? We hoard yeah. all these things. And I'm not even talking about money. I'm talking about hoarding too much food, you know? In nature, you can't do that because you just put a, a big bullseye on your back yeah. and you start attracting all these animals that want to get to your food source, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah see. That's fascinating. But then you, you have to, you came, you went back to South Africa. And, and now I'm curious, you say it's eye-opening and I, I do not doubt for a second how profound the experience was for you. But it's overwhelming for me sometimes when I have those experiences and I've only had them, I mean, not even on the scale that you're talking about, never, but those, I have had those moments or those, and I, how do you deal? Because what I feel is overwhelmed 
by now what do I do with this? Yeah, and- so, so, so after that, I went, I, I still returned to Mexico and this was like, I, I was, so I, I spent uh, many weeks in, in the desert. And then after that, when I finished, because I was going to do 30 days, I, um, I found a, a guy in the middle of, of the desert, um, staying in the middle of nowhere, a French Moroccan guy, very eccentric guy, a very interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, and then I spent some time with him in the middle of nowhere, no cell phone reception. Um, and this was just an amazingly interesting adventurer and person uh, who had worked all over the world doing extreme stuff. Um, yeah. Um, so we so we hung out, and then one day he came to me and he said um, he just received word from somebody who had driven in a couple of hours from town on this dry riverbed with a four by four. That this guy said Italy just closed their borders, and like, and that that was the first we heard. <laughs> we were in the middle of nowhere of this Ew. this COVID uh, fiasco. So anyway, so that was the start of COVID, and. Um, and that really threw my life into turmoil for the next couple of months. Um, yeah. But yeah, then then I spent another year um, in Mexico and I went, I uh, did some more Sea Shepherd work and uh, another adventure, like the Sea of Cortez thing. Yes. And then only after that did I come back. So I came back maybe, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago and... Yeah. So I would say after the wilderness thing, I looked at all of society with with new eyes. Um, and I I think I'm not the first one that's experienced this. I think there's so many thousands of people that have done this. I mean, you spoke to somebody who's lived off the grid in your previous episode, which was very interesting, uh, by the way. But she would have had similar experiences to myself, um, similar emotions, I think. I think uh, from what I've read, some other people's accounts, yeah, you come back uh, into society and sometimes to your home. For me, coming back after Mexico, because remember, we live on the ships. We live like that as well. We we wear old jeans. We patch all our old stuff. We make each other gifts. We don't go out and buy it. Yeah, wow. Uh, we spend long periods in solitude. Um, we recycle, we fix everything ourselves. Uh, we try to fix everything on the ships ourselves. We do our own welding. We open our own engines, work on it. So, so, so we, we, so coming back from that into normal society. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because obviously now also being environmentally conscious, coming back and just seeing the wastage and the, and and the riches and all the how spoiled we are as, as humanity and how much we are wasting and how how we still haven't gotten the picture that uh, we've come to the end of our of this period of almost debauchery you know of yeah. consuming way too much resources. Um, you come back and you and you come back into normal society outside of these conservation bubbles. Um, and yeah, this strikes you. And I think one of the things you you quickly have to deal with is uh, 
shit, am I being too judgmental? You know, mm -hmm. am, I, am, am I being an asshole? You know, yeah. am I being yeah. like one of these extreme, whatever, extreme it's... vegan, extreme Christian, extreme whatever, walking around and judging everybody, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, that's definitely something one struggles with after living like this for a period is coming back and seeing uh, normal, normal society and then, um, you know, how people throw things away. Like that's one of the things that, that struck me because obviously now I have to keep myself busy up until my next gig with just doing whatever kind of handyman stuff. Yeah. Things and, and like saying to somebody, hey, I can fix that. And the person's like, no, no, no. We don't want that imperfection. Yeah. And you look at the imperfection as like, that's like a quarter of a millimeter by four millimeters. Yeah. And even that can yeah. be taken away. And the person's like, no, no, yeah. I throw it away. And, and yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to. Because obviously we, I've spent a lot of time with with these environmental people and conservationists, and really just trying to practice what we preach, and then coming back and seeing, okay, this is normal society, and and this is very much against all these ideas we we've um, reinforced or, or I've reinforced over the last yeah. three years. Yeah. So yeah, that's tricky. And I I think before I came back, I said to myself, I I knew. I was gonna, I was gonna struggle with these things. So I really just said to myself, uh, and, and we discussed it amongst ourselves before we uh, leave the ship or leave the desert or whatever. We would have these conversations with like-minded, minded people, and just say, "Look, yeah, remember when you come back? These are two different worlds, you know." Yeah. Um, I think normal, typical consumer-driven society buys into the consumer-driven lifestyle. They've, they, they select it, and they opt into it, and they keep opting into it. Yeah. And I'm not going to drastically change that. So I need to accept that and accept that this is the world that, that these people subscribe to, and they will keep subscribing to it um, unless they have a major change of heart. Um, but I can't necessarily bring about that change in art, so I need to accept this. And um, the only thing I can do is to um, raise awareness of um, yes. being, actually being out there, being on the oceans, being in the ocean, being mm. in the desert, being amongst the wildlife, protecting it, uh, yeah. looking at how much is left. And seeing that decline and communicating that to people and saying, hey, like, we can't continue on this road. But at the same time, yeah, uh, not trying not to judge someone. Because to answer your question, I think one of your, your first reactions is there's a little bit of, you can't help yourself. There's a little bit of judgment, you know, when you come back and you, you see the wastage. And uh, so, yeah, for me, that's something I, I try to manage and, you know, I think acceptance, and I, I don't know if if you heard it, but that's what I spoke of when I said um, it does sometimes feel to me like, you know, this planet is bleeding out and you kind of, um, but what's happened to me lately is there's a tenderness now in the way I go about with people and with um, with that judgment, my own judgment, I'm more tender with myself. And I feel like, because you're right, you have to accept 
but I still have to raise three children into this situation. And um, yeah, that's why. Uh, but I don't know if we have time now. I just want to ask you one more thing, if that's okay. Um, I sent you something about effective altruism, which basically is about is what you are putting money into, whether it's your 10% or um, what you do with extra money that supports initiatives from around the world, how effective are they actually? And where should your money go? Because if, if your purpose is raising that awareness, and I am aware now, I want, what do I do now with that awareness? And how do I... Um, yeah. So for instance, there's just this one example. The, my children, um, if you become a member of uh, WWF, they send you, <laughs> they send you a soft toy, made in China from poly, polyester. So, but the children they give happily give ten euros a month because they are supporting the animals and they support the orangutan and they get a a toy of that. Do you still? Is there another way we can? spend our money a better way yeah yeah uh to be honest with you um i i'm a fan of wwf i'm actually also a closet fan of greenpeace um, but sea shepherd um having been with them having really been on the front lines with them i, I mean my part is now taking a separate. Uh, I'm taking a, a fork in the road, and I'm I'm going to work in the bushveld with anti-poaching there. Okay. Um, so I'm no, no longer directly um, affiliated or linked to Sea Shepherd. So I don't really have any reason to blow them up um, in terms of credibility. Mm. But. I can say to you, out of all the organizations I've worked for, because I used to do consulting and we worked for a, a number of, of uh, organizations throughout the country. And out of everyone I've worked for, I, this is probably the one that I've been most impressed with. Um, huh. Like pound, um, pound for pound, uh, bang for buck, uh, these guys are just on it you know they 80 percent of their workforce is volunteer based yes. and I'm, I'm telling you i've employed guys private sector some of the highest highly skilled guys private sector and these guys without getting paid work harder than those guys um they take bigger risks um they they give up their luxuries they live a, a really spartan life and then the other thing that's so interesting, when I embarked on this journey with um, Sea Shepherd, I really had no idea how important marine conservation uh, was um, in the bigger picture, how, how a big part uh, ecology, uh, the marine ecosystem played in, in, in ecology or the larger ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, you know, now having spent so much time there it becomes you know all the stats and the data become so uh, part of your day-to-day -day discussions but you know realizing that 50 percent of our oxygen comes from phytoplankton you know and wells are the the farmers of phytoplankton yeah yeah uh, and all all the all the water on the earth cycles through there including the water in our bodies so there's a little bit of the sea right inside of you right now whether you know it or not it's the water inside you has come from the ocean and sure. if it could talk it would tell you some very interesting things 
But the, the sea is, um, is incredibly vital uh, to our uh, continued existence. And at this moment, it is under incredible, incredible threat. Um, and, you know, you, if you look into fishing, you'll see how many of those species are overfished. And, and just us working in anti-poaching on the sea, sure. uh, pulling those nets and looking what's inside those nets and looking at the amount of abandoned <laughs> nets and active nets uh, and then realizing that this is an archaic way of harvesting something. It's the equivalent of throwing 20 hamburgers away for every one hamburger you eat. You know, those nets are coming up with the one we pulled 66 dead sharks, not a single totoaba. Yeah. Poachers were going for not a single corvina, not a single uh, whatever else they could have been hoping for. Um, this this is fishing, and this is our ocean. And you know, humanity has always had a very strong link uh, to the ocean. I think the the battle for conservation at the moment is in the sea. I think we have a we have a chance there of still turning things around because. We don't have all this fencing that we have on the land. Uh, uh, I think there's farmers, whether they, um, you know, farmers believe with all their heart that they are doing humanity a great service by providing their food. But what we've done is we've created all these fences across the land and the earth, and those have really screwed up with migration yeah. of wild populations. And the ocean, you still have that advantage that. You don't have that fencing. Um, we could, if we tried rather hard enough, we could still turn things around and rewild many of the areas by proclaiming reservation areas, um, making sure that a, a significant portion of our sea is declared as fishing-free reserves. Okay. Um, so I, I would... You know, I would say I, I cannot I cannot recommend uh, Sea Shepherd any higher. They they really practice what they preach. They wouldn't send you a Chinese toy. No. They, if they ever sent you something, it would probably be probably be of a recycled material, a recycled <laughs> net that they pulled out of the ocean using volunteers. You know. Yeah, uh, that's so. Uh, thank you. That that was, and I really um. I, I count on you to keep doing what you're doing because it's, I don't know how comfortable you feel with being an inspiration, but you do, you, you inspire me in the way I raise my children as well. Um, and I really, I value what you do and I'm very curious to see what you do next. Thank you. And um, I think somebody should get you on the other end of a, of a podcast as well. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, yeah, thank you for those kind words. Um, let's just leave it there, yeah. Okay, okay. And then I, th I think I might ask you to do another one in the future. Um, but for now, it's really, it was great talking to you. Um, yeah. And I think that's us. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye.